This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Sunda or Diadi's clouded leopard was only identified to science in 2006 when genetic research indicated they were a separate species from the mainland clouded leopard. Named as such because of the large blotchy cloud-like markings on their body, Sunda clouded leopards are said to be only found on the islands of Borneo and Sumatra. Listed as vulnerable on the IUCN's red list, a major threat to their existence is habitat loss, but they are also poached for the illegal wildlife life trade. So it was International Clouded Leopard Day on the 4th of August and on this episode of the ABCs of Biodiversity, our ongoing series where we explore why biodiversity loss is our loss, I'm going to discuss the vital role Sunda Clouded Leopards play in maintaining Borneo's ecosystem with Christian Gomez. He's a biologist who is currently attached to the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit or WAL crew at the University of Oxford. He is also a researcher who has studied these elusive creatures, developing the first genetic-based research project on the Sunda Clouded Leopard and its St. Patrick Carnivores. Welcome, Christian. How are you today? Hi, Juliet. Very nice to be here in person, seeing you in the flesh. Yes, thank you so much for joining me today, Christian. Uh, lovely to have you on the show. So yes, we caught up, I think it was uh, back in 2020. Yep. Yeah, the thick of the pandemic. That's right. And uh, we were talking to you, I was talking to you about your uh, Merdeka Award at mm-hmm. the time. Uh, and of course, now you are at the University of Oxford. As I mentioned, you're with Wild Crew, which is the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit. Tell yep. me a little bit about that. So I'm currently doing a PhD with the, the unit and it's really a remarkable place. It's basically a mansion in the middle of Oxford. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my office space, for example, I'm seated at one corner. On the other corner is the one of the most eminent biologists on Iranian leopards. Okay. On the other side is a girl from Canada who's studying Moroccan wolves. On one side is a guy studying tigers in Thailand. I walk down the room, there's a whole bunch of lion biologists. It's just this, like this candy land for biologists because every single day we meet people who are working in uh, on really elusive and amazing species all over the all over the world, um, so I've been there for about nine months now, mm-hmm. and I think I had my fill of daily biology con- conversations, and I decided to come back because it was time to go back to the field. You know, it's where I belong. Sure. So I came back about a month ago and went straight out into the field. So I just came back from Sabah actually, but. A day or two ago. Yeah, two days ago. What was it like? What were you doing uh, in, in, in the field, basically? Yeah, Yeah. so after, you know, a PhD now, today, looks a lot like a programmer. Okay. Right, the fields are almost indistinguishable. Because doing a PhD means dealing with lots of data. So you just end up spending hours and hours on a computer, crunching code, processing data. It's quite dull and boring, <laughs> especially for someone like me. And so being out in the field, you know, sweating, having mud all over you, leeches crawling up your leg. Oh, the worst. No, the best. It's the best. No, leeches. Because it really makes me feel like uh, alive, Mm -hmm. right? I'm interacting with the things I'm studying, with the systems I'm working in. The data suddenly makes much more sense. Okay. It's no longer about a line of code. It's about the systems that we're trying to change and impact. Yeah. Okay, that's excellent. And I want to talk to you a a lot more, you know, a bit later about uh, the kind of research that you're doing, what you're actually doing in the field. But, you know, for the purpose of this series, the ABCs of Biodiversity, we usually try to start off with a bit of a 101. So, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Sunda clouded leopards, uh, they were only discovered as a separate subspecies in 2006. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what, uh, tell us what you can about that. Yeah, so Buckley Beeson uh, was the person who wrote the paper. Mm. It was a phenomenal one because she basically proved that all this while we thought there was all one species and mm-hmm. it was just called the clouded leopard. Mm-hmm. But with very little genetic data and some morphological evidence, you know, just by looking at the skin colour, 
she proved quite deliberately and with lots of, you know, it's very clear that there was in fact two species. Okay. And here the, the context of what a species is important, right? Because it is highly debated. But two species basically means, you know, we are all one species. All humans are one species. Okay. The last time we shared a human subspecies was millions of years ago. Um, yeah. And so a species is a big deal. Um, and so now realizing that we actually have two species of cloud leopards in the world. Mm-hmm. However, the only place the other species is found, right, is in Borneo and Sumatra. So it's this really tiny place because the cloud leopard is widely distributed. It's almost all across Asia. But all of that is one species. Mm-hmm. The only other place that has another species of cloud leopard is Borneo and Sumatra. So just to give you a bit of context of why the Sunda cloud leopard is a super critical piece of the evolutionary puzzle, right? Because it basically separated from this mainland population about 24 million years ago and evolved really distinctly. So there's a lot of evidence for evolution happening there. Sure. Okay. So that's that's really exciting, right? I mean, that was such an amazing discovery. And I guess, you know, what would you say are the key differences between the Sunda clouded leopard and the clouded leopard? Yeah. So the cloud leopard, there there are two kind of paradigms to think about this. One is in its habitat type, Mm -hmm. right? The composition of biology within it. So the mainland cloud leopard is is a player in the big cog of machines of other carnivores because where the cloud leopard is, there's tigers, there's common leopards, there's huge, there's snow leopards in some of them, some systems in Nepal especially. So it is sharing habitat with lots of other big predators. So from a behavioral standpoint, it behaves quite differently from the Sunda. Mm. Because in the Sunda, the cloud leopard is the big head honcho, right? He shares the habitat with nobody else. All the other cats are smaller and so take different prey. So we find different behavioral patterns. For example, in the mainland, cloud leopards spend a lot less time walking on roads, Mm. more time on trees. But in the island, these guys are... Like, they're really boisterous. So they're just walking up and down roads all the time. Logging roads, main roads, big trails in the forest. They're always there. And that's the features that they're drawn to. Mainly because they have nothing to be afraid of. Mm, They're not competing with anyone, right? Okay, okay. Um, So that's a behavioral paradigm. From a... Strictly from a aesthetic, you know, the way it looks. The Sunda is slightly darker. Mm -hmm. The mainland is lighter. The Sunda, of course, is larger because it doesn't have to compete. You know, it's got more resources. The mainland tends to be slightly smaller. Uh, but that's the main thing, I think. Uh, I mean, to the naked eye, if you've never seen the species, they might look like the same. Okay. But honestly, like for me now, after seeing several images, it's quite distinct. And I think if you put the two side by side, you'll know that they're different. Okay, all right. Yeah. That's just really interesting. And you, so basically in Sabah, they are the apex. Lah. They are the apex predator. Yes. Okay, yes. all right, excellent. And uh, so that means they would play a similar role as let's say tigers over here peninsula, in the peninsula, yeah. right? Okay, all right. And who are their prey as far as we know? I mean, what, what are the uh, animals that they hunt? So I have a funny story about this. Oh, tell. Last year, we got our hands... So the main way you tell prey is through scat, right? You That's pick right. up pieces of poop and then you you extract DNA or you look at fragments of bone and try and tell what it's eaten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a geneticist. Sure. So I told everybody, we're going to extract the DNA, we're going to find out what it's eating, it's going to be great, we're going to publish this big paper. Finally, we have evidence, we know what the Sunda cloud leopard eats because this has been a big question mark for many, many years. We don't quite know. Mm. Um, so I got my hands on a, a couple of samples of fresh scat, very, very, very precious samples because it's hard to find. And I took it with me to the lab, extracted DNA, uh, used PCR to try and identify what mammals that was in the scat, 
and ran a sequence. And then after you get a DNA sequence, you check it against the database online okay. to see, well, what sequence does this match with? Sure. Which animal? Surprised to find that when I did that, I found that all of my DNA sequences were hitting with fish species. <laughs> oh, dear. But the percentage of similarity was like 50%, which is horrible. Okay. Which means that I messed up big time. Oh. Someone must have been having a tuna sandwich in the lab oh. and I got fragments of his DNA or something. I don't know what happened. Christian, Basically, oh yeah. It's a really beautiful example of the beginning of my career and how I've messed up <laughs> and will continue to mess up. <laughs> but I mean, it's not the end of the road. So that was okay. one minor mess up. Okay. Um, I have to repeat that experiment again. Thankfully, there's still samples. So th- hopefully we have enough material to publish a paper about it. But for now, what we do have is an immense record from wildlife photographers right. who see these animals quite often and thankfully find them eating stuff from time to time <laughs> and send us back really gory images of headless monkeys. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh So to give a short answer to your question, they eat primates because they spend a lot of time on trees. On the ground, based on their size, they can take things like juvenile munjacks, so middle-sized deers. Um, obviously, the small sankanchils, you know, the um, mouse deers. Mm. Uh, they can take pigs, but... Pigs now, as you might know, is completely gone in Borneo. That's it's, right, yeah. You know, there's a massive virus spreading throughout the Southeast Asia. That's right. Um, we've seen very clearly that none of our cameras are detecting pigs anymore. Okay. So that's a big, big problem okay. for prey species for this animal. Um, what else is it? We've got evidence of it chasing a porcupine. Don't know what happened. Quite hard to eat porcupines. Okay. Don't know why you would do that. This is uh, what happens when you're at the apex line, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 you're yeah. like, okay, I'm just going to try everything I'm just going to try everything and see what works. <laughs> Probably never take a porcupine again. <laughs> Tried it once, didn't like it. It was not fun. Learned the hard way. Yeah. Yes. Learned a lesson nonetheless. <laughs> okay, so so they eat primates. So, I mean, yes, again, they are the apex predator. And I guess I want to talk a little bit about how they are not very much studied, right? There's, I remember mm-hmm. this from our conversation from two years ago. Yeah. There's actually very little known about them, yeah. right? Which is why you're also very interested in Yeah, I was surprised. Them. You know, like three years ago when I started working on the species, um, I was lucky enough to work with probably the global expert on cloud leopards, uh, Dr. Andrew Hearn, who became my boss and is now my supervisor. Um, and I remember asking him really simple questions. Like, so, I mean, I call him Andy, so, you know, we're driving through the forest and I'm like, so Andy, you know, how many of them are left um, in Sabah? And I was like, well, Christian, that was my PhD. Mm. And he finished his PhD only in 2017. Yep. Which means that he spent all of his early career from 2009 up to 2015, 16, answering that one simple question, which was a lot of work, but it's a very basic question. How many are there? And thankfully, because of him, we have that answer, right? Otherwise, we'll all be throwing blank darts and trying to guess at it, even up till now, okay. uh, had he not done the survey. So, yeah, that gives you a context as to how studied these species are, you know, because by contrast, lions in Africa, they've nailed it down to level of families and they know how big or small a family is in a specific part of Tanzania. Correct. You know, they're tracking relationships between mothers and cubs and males and how many males are in a territory and how many mothers are there and they can estimate all these really complex family relationships. That is the granular detail that we're getting in Africa. Okay. Here, by contrast, we have really rough approximations of total population size. We don't even know which exact habitats they exist in. We just have rough ideas. So there's so much room to understand the species. Um, 
and biodiversity as a whole, I think, mm-hmm. in this region. Okay, yeah. all right. Let's just go for a quick break, Christian. When we come back, let's talk about the threats uh, to their survival. And I guess, you know, what what Andrew has actually learned right from his, his studies, which I think informed a lot of the subsequent studies that yeah. came on uh, the Sunda Clouded Leopard. I'm speaking today to Christian Gomez. He's a biologist with the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit or Wild Crew at the University of Oxford. We're talking about Sunda Clouded Leopards today. It's another episode of ABCs of Biodiversity on Earth Matters, where we discuss why biodiversity loss is our loss. We'll continue Continue that chat after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's another episode of the ABCs of Biodiversity, our ongoing series where we explore why biodiversity loss is our loss. Today, we're exploring why Sunda clouded leopards are so important. They are the apex predator over in uh, Sumatra and Borneo, where they are found. Well, in, in Borneo, at least, right, yeah. where they are found. Uh, and uh, joining me today is Christian Gomez. He's a biologist with Wild Crew, which is the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit at the University of Oxford. He's a PhD student there. Uh, well, you're studying the Sunda clouded leopard, of course, yes. right? Which is why you're here talking to us about it. Uh, as uh, Christian mentioned earlier, you know, they are vulnerable, listed as vulnerable on the IUCN's red list. I want to talk a little bit about the threats to their existence. Uh, Christian, maybe you can talk to us about uh, why their numbers are... Well, their numbers seem to be uh, decreasing, right? That's what we yeah, know as well, that's right? That's the projections. The projections, yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. So, unfortunately, there's very few ways to monitor the expansion or contraction of a species population. So all we can do is make models that try to project it, right? And mm-hmm. models are basically mathematical equations where you put in variables and they spit out a number. Sure. And the models are influenced but by what we know about their habitat types, right? Mm-hmm. And in Sabah, the ideal habitat type for cloud leopard is primary forest. Unfortunately, in Sabah, there's also only 3% of primary forest left. In Sarawak, I think the number is even lower. And so based on those projections, therefore, it, the, the future doesn't bode so well for the species, sure. right? Mm-hmm. However, the more we learn about the species, the more we're realizing that they are much more adaptable than we think to different habitat types. Uh, they're much more resilient. Mm-hmm. So we're detecting that in places where they're selectively logged, meaning you know, in, there are plenty of these examples in Lahadatu, for example, forest way in Lahadatu, close to Danum Valley and things like that, where they're taking out trees selectively but keeping the forest intact. So the canopy is still covered, but they're just selecting specific trees and relogging that. And in places like that, we've detected quite a high number of cloud leopards um, for various reasons, but the main being that the forest is still kind of functional despite some trees being taken away. And so we're seeing that maybe there's not so much of this dichotomy of forest and not forest that perhaps that there is a gradient of forest types each of which have a different suitability for cloud leopards, right? Mm -hmm. And so as we refine, I'm going really long with this answer, but as we refine our understanding of what types of habitat works for cloud leopards, we can add in more complexity to that habitat type. Mm -hmm. And maybe then the projections might change. Right. But for now, the ideal habitat type for cloud leopards that we know is in decline and therefore our projections of the species also declining. The good news though is that so far for us at least in Sabah, Wherever we think they should be, we're finding them there. Okay, that's good. And that's not the case for species like the tigers. Because there's plenty of suitable habitat in peninsular Malaysia for tigers, but they're just not there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's quite alarming. Right. For cloud leopards, that seems like it's not the case. Even if the numbers are low, we're always finding them there. As long as we've put in a good amount of work and effort to find them, 
the pictures are coming in. The cameras are picking them up. Okay. And that's that's really heartening and that's positive. Really, that's yeah. great. That's, yeah. So I guess what you're trying to say is that if there is appropriate management of these sorts of commercial forests and things like that, that could actually further enhance the conservation value of the place as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, excellent. And um, so yes, okay, so forest loss and I guess forest fragmentation is is a threat to their survival. What about things like uh, illegal hunting, uh, the wildlife trade? Does that also play a part? Yeah. So there is, at the moment, very little evidence that this species is being traded okay. or hunted. But they definitely do happen because of just anecdotal accounts that we've had with poachers. The thing is, the species is so well evolved to stay hidden. Mm, okay. It's really successful. I mean, I've been out there for four years <laughs> and honestly have never seen a cloud leopard in the wild. Okay. Unless I've caught them and tranquilize them and put them to sleep, then yeah, they're right in front of me. Okay. But otherwise, no, it's really hard to see the species. You've got to be out there walking every night, you know, in the most cryptic parts of the forest and you might have a chance. Okay. And looking around, right? So it's hard. So I guess that's why poachers don't see them all that often. But that being said, when they do, that is the question. Do they kill them or do they not? And, you know, we need really good social surveys to understand this and social surveys that are not imposing, that are... That the poachers feel safe being open to, mm-hmm. uh, and we've not done that yet. So that's a that's a cue for social scientists to come over here and do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're open to those sorts of collaborations, aren't of you? Of course, of course, because yeah. it's wonderful questions to be answered mm-hmm. for which I have no expertise. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, there's no trade. There's there's no evidence of trade at the moment at a high amount or poaching. Okay. So I would say the biggest threats, as you mentioned earlier, is the habitat loss and the fragmentation. Okay. Just to go, I mean, a bit of detail into fragmentation. The main thing is lowland forest is perfect for plantations and because it's just logistically easy. Yeah. So we're finding that even if we do protect forests, they tend to be these high elevation mountain types and then all the lowland around it is converted, which is the, the, the problem with that is that although we have forests in all these high elevation places, they become little islands of forest Correct. living on its own Correct. and animals within it, if they're stuck in there, end up inbreeding. And that is always a cue for long-term extinction. Mm. It's, always, it's always been a precursor. Once the animals start inbreeding, you know, they're on the spiral down and eventually they'll go extinct. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this trend already. There is evidence of fragmentation. We're seeing very restricted dispersal events. So that is already kicking off. And I think we're catching it early. And I think we're trying to deal with this problem of fragmentation right now. So that's also, I guess, a more positive note. Mm-hmm. I do see a joint kind of will, mm-hmm. both from the political end, the commercial end, and the conservation end, of course, to try and push this idea of connectivity forward. Okay, because uh, they need, um, I guess, wide expanses of, of forest to... That's, that's basically yeah, it's how massive, they... massive, actually. The last estimate we did was their home range was something like 200 square kilometres, oh. which is basically, if you draw a square, it's 200 kilometres one way, yep. and the width, and 200 kilometers the other way and the, right. and the length. Okay. That's huge. That is, that's yeah. massive. And yeah. we know that that's easily, I mean, that's what, 3% left of, uh, yeah, of primary forest, forest, primary yeah. forest left. Yeah. So obviously that's not going to happen for them. And so that's where things like inbreeding comes in and that's where things like diseases also can yeah. come in and things yeah. like that, right? Yeah. And that will further affect their uh, yeah. future survival. Yeah, absolutely. So when animals become inbred, what happens is their genes become homozygous, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're more likely to pick up recessive genetic diseases. 
Um, you know, in human, the human example would be sickle cell anemia, hemophilia. In animals, they've got lots of these similar kind of genetic diseases. You'll find that more animals, more cubs are being born with heart issues, mm. with, uh, you know, stunted tails, with deformed paws. You know, the, the usual things that happen when inbreeding happens. Okay. The same will be for animals. Okay. All right. And, you know, you, as you mentioned, you're a geneticist, right? And uh, I remember I asked you this in our previous interview. Maybe you can help uh, just remind us about that. What is the link between genetic-based research and conservation? And how did that translate? Uh, how does that translate to the conservation of sunder-clouded leopards? Yeah. So I think how genetics, the most simple way genetics can inform conservation is through the measurement of genetic diversity. So we're always talking about biodiversity, right? But one of the key key indexes for biodiversity is genetic diversity. Because even if you have uh, five species of a mammal, for example, but each of those species come from the same family, mm. then you have a very low genetic diversity for that species. So say the cloud leopard. If all the cloud leopards in Sabah are family members, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Then although you have, a, you have the species that are there, but the moment one disease comes about, they're more likely to hit all of them at once and they'll all go. They won't have this adaptive potential to fight, okay. right, to respond. Uh, and when the environment inevitably changes, you need that, that ability to transform and change a bit of your genetic code to adapt to that environmental change. Right. But when you lose that genetic diversity, then you don't have it. Mm. You become this monoculture species that all falls to the same disease. Um, so that's where I think genetics comes in. It comes in as an as a estimate of genetic diversity. We're trying to develop indexes and metrics to measure genetic diversity for all species so that we have some baseline data to just catch these problems before they happen. Okay. Right? Inbreeding is a super early event before extinction, but you know once you catch it, you know it's coming. Right. So you can take really early intervention. Uh, if we had these tools for the tigers about 30 years ago, we would have seen inbreeding happen over and over again. We'd have picked up these markers early, such that even if the numbers were high, we would have seen inbreeding coefficients really high as well. And we would have been like, okay, we've got to start translocating these tigers to make sure that they're breeding with other populations as well so that we can keep genetic diversity high. Okay, all right. And I'm very curious to know about your current research. Um, I I think, you know, uh, we've been seeing a lot of uh, intensive camera trapping surveys, you know, and that sheds so much light, right? I think even your supervisor, um, Andrew Hearn, uh, I mean, that gave us, as you said, basic ecology of this elusive wildcat. But now you, uh, and you alluded to it just now, you're actually physically trapping them. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. There are two reasons why we physically trap them. One fundamental question we want to answer is when the animals become fragmented, um, are they able to move out of that fragment, right? Mm. And the only way to really answer this is to put a GPS collar on the animal and look at where it goes. Is it going out of that fragmented habitat? Is it using oil palm landscapes to traverse to another forest patch? Or is it truly, based on our assumptions, isolated. Mm. And so this exercise is just to try and rid ourselves of making any assumptions. Because if you ask any conservationists, they'll say like, yeah, of course it won't go through a palm oil. Why would it do that? But well, we've made an assumption there. Mm. We have no idea really. Yeah. It could very well use the oil palm if this environment is suitable for it. Um, or it could not. But what we want to do is answer the question empirically. And so the GPS collars are really effective. Unfortunately, the only way to put a GPS collar on this really elusive animal is to spend months camera trapping, finding out where they are, somehow cajoling them to enter a (laughs) trap for no reason whatsoever, having the doors shut, doing a 10-hour hike to that trap, putting the animal down for 
30 minutes um, and putting a collar on them and then hoping the collar works. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> so it's a massive okay. endeavor. Every time I talk to people about it, they're like, why do you do this? You know, is that data worth it that much time? Mm. And I say absolutely yes. It's mind-boggling how much we learn about one individual we catch um, just because we know so little about the species. Mm-hmm. I mean, the few individuals we've caught, I would say number under 10 at the moment, which is really small. Mm-hmm. Um, but even from those few individuals, we've learned about dispersal, we've learned more about home range, we've learned about activity patterns, uh, possible prey I mean, we've, we, we managed to identify a, a kill based on the GPS data that was sent to us live because we found that this cloud leopard kept going back to the same spot for a few days. So okay. like, oh, there must be something there. Yeah. Went there, true enough, we found a dead pig, the carcass. Okay. And we didn't move the pig away. We just put cameras over the big carcass to see the actual feeding process. How do they eat? How do they eat in a while? Are they just in one place? Are they pulling the animal away? Are they coming back over and over again? Super exciting questions that we got to answer because of the collar. That's so amazing. That's one facet of the live trapping. We get to put these collars on them that tell us a lot. Mm-hmm. The second facet is all the peripheral questions. So we get to take genetic samples that I then use to do a whole genome sequence and answer all these genetic diversity kind of questions. You can take, um, I just spoke to Dr. Zainal from Bora two days ago. Mm-hmm. I was with him in Tabin and uh, we were discussing this using these probes to try and artificially get the males to ejaculate so we can keep the sperm and deposit that into a bank. So if the species ever goes extinct, we have their egg cells and things like that. So that's really cool, uh, really useful stuff. Because obviously, coming across a wild animal is going to become rarer and rarer with time. Um, at least that's what we think. And so these samples are going to become even more precious because we just don't know what the technology in the future is going to be like. So we want to full future-proof everything we do. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that sounds really, really exciting and I'm so glad that, you know, you've actually got some samples already. I mean, yeah. it has to be really tough. I mean, the yeah. logistics, the planning, yeah. everything, yeah. it must be quite crazy. Yeah, it's intense. Honestly, it doesn't make any sense why people <laughs> would do, do this for a full-time job. But yeah, I wouldn't do anything else at the moment. I can imagine. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, so so completely worth it and uh, and you are learning so much. So you mentioned you were just there. I mean, uh, some int- any any updates from the field from this latest trip that you can share with us? Yeah, we are gearing up. I mean, COVID really ruined a lot of trapping plans. You know, it was so sad because we had just kind of optimised our team and we had a beautiful team of people who were super, super passionate, really good at trapping. You know, we had trapped two or three individuals and we had just found our rhythm, you know, mm. of how to find them, catch them. You know, the whole team logistics was set up nicely. All the equipment was working perfectly and the borders shut. Mm. And when the borders shut, of course, we had a vet from abroad. She had to leave. Andy is from the UK. He had to leave. The team kind of dissolved a bit. And so we're just trying to pick it up at the moment. So this last visit I did uh, was to try and figure out again, you know, like where are the animals at the moment? Check up on all our live traps. Are they all still working? Uh, restock the piles of drugs that we might need and equipment and all that. So it's like, you know, getting the machine rolling again. Um, And so we're anticipating in the next month to start live trapping again. And the good news is the forest patch that we have trapped before now has a whole harem of new individuals. Oh, wonderful. Um, Probably younger than the ones that we caught, right? So the males that we caught before have probably been displaced or ousted by these younger males. And these younger males tend to disperse more. 
um, or are dispersing in the moment. So it's quite exciting, you know, you can catch them and see what they're doing okay. and how it's different from the guy who came before them. Okay, okay, excellent. Yeah. And I guess, you know, again, for the purpose of this series, right, what would the loss of Sunda clouded leopards in the wild uh, mean to the biodiversity in the area? How would that loss also come to impact us? Yeah, perfect. So apex predators as a whole have always been known to be what we would call keystone species. And the idea of the keystone species, basically, when you have a house, you have the keystone which holds up, you know, it tends to be the structural point of the house. Um, and you might have four or five of these pillars holding up the structure. And so the keystone species is known to be one of those things. When you take it down, the whole thing collapses. Um, apex predators all over the world have tended to play this function. And there are unfortunate examples and experiments that have been done, you know, with places like the Yellowstone where the wolves went extinct, in Europe where the lynx went extinct. Whenever apex predators leave, massive change happens. Whether the change is good or bad is completely subjective, but massive change, right? You have a whole new composition of herbivores and the herbivores then change the composition of the flora. So there's huge change in the composition of all life in that forest. And basically, we don't want to wait to see whether that change is going to be good or bad. We like the forest the way it's been designed, right? It's this perfect functioning system that supports our lives in that we depend on the soil so much. You know, as much as we like to be a really advanced economy, we are still an agrarian one in many ways. Agriculture is still a huge part of our economy. And so making sure that the nitrogen cycles are going, that our rivers are flowing, that all of those carbon, sulfur, phosphorus cycles are maintained by biodiversity are protected and, and enshrined by these systems that are regulated in the forest where we do not see what's going on, mm-hmm. right? So it's super critical. Even the extinction of the bearded pig, for example, just, you know, an ungulate that we think has no impact is going to drastically affect the composition of flora in the forest because now you've lost a disperser, you've lost a, an animal that's made trails for millions of years for plants to settle. Um, it's going to change things. And we depend on the soil. We depend on all of these things working for our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, the loss of cloud leopard is going to be the most astronomical change that we've ever experienced. Uh, we've seen a few species go. We're going to see the tiger leave. But fortunately fortunately for Peninsula, there are predators in the forest. You still have the leopard. You still have a cloud leopard. In Sabah, it's just a Sunda cloud leopard. Uh, okay. Every other cat is much smaller. Okay. Um, and so... It's going to be quite a devastating loss. Okay, all right. Which is why we're glad that you guys are doing all this research and that as as crazy as it is, right? The like trapping these animals yeah. and spending fifteen hours a day. Did you say? In yeah, the forest? yeah, yeah, yeah. Two days ago was fifteen hours. Yeah, <laughs> it's <was> fun. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Um, and you know, what are some of the other plans in the pipeline? You know, in terms of uh, conservation work for Sunda clouded leopards, as far as your research is going. Yeah. Well, my main focus would be. You know, I'm at the start of my career now, and I really wanted to be defined by this genomic revolution. Um, In academia at the moment, you're seeing publication after publication of whole genomes of so many protected and wild species. And that's great because genomes are a reservoir for biological data. You know, it tells us everything we need to know about that species, not just in this point of time, but in the past and also in the future, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And whole genome sequencing has become much more affordable, even for us. And so my main agenda is to try and get as many genetic samples for all our wildlife and use genome sequencing as a tool where camera trapping cannot. You know, when a species becomes too hard to detect or or too rare, 
genome sequencing can then answer some questions. Okay. You know, even if we get one individual of a really rare animal, it can give us a sense of what that population size is like and how that population size has dropped or increased mm-hmm. through time. Okay. So that's going to be the main um, thrust of my work over the next four, maybe 10, maybe 15. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. well, we, well, we wish you luck. Um, and I guess, you know, if anyone's interested to follow your work, uh, is there a way that they can do that? Yeah, I'm primarily on Instagram a lot, on Facebook, probably spend too much time on those things. <laughs> but, no, um, it's important, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm also on Twitter. You can just use my name, Christian Gomez. Um, I do try, I mean, obviously, as an academic, my work is about scientific publications. Um, but of course, always looking for opportunities to communicate to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and collaborate, right? With social and collaborate, yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, yeah. all right. So just search for Christian Gomez uh, on, Twitter, on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, do you have a TikTok account? I ask this of all the folks uh, on my I've show. I've been told many times to do it. Mm. I just can't see myself dancing. I think you must try, <laughs> Christian. Do something, some jungle dance or something like that. But yes, but thank you so much uh, for joining me today. You, um, I've been speaking to Christian Gomez. He's a biologist with the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit or Wild Crew at the University of Oxford. He's also a biologist. Uh, he's studying the Sunda clouded leopard again just search for him on social media if you'd like to keep updated with can his... i add a note well yes of course can i just say that it's remarkable that in malaysian radio we get to speak about an animal like the clouded leopard <laughs> and it's because of you miss juliet jacobs you've paved my... the way for the rest of us no it's thanks to bfm for allowing okay, these sorts of conservation yeah, uh, con- yes conversation, conversations <laughs> on conservation as we like to call it uh, but it's my absolute pleasure and if you miss any part of our chat today you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash earth or you can find it on the bfm app this has been earth matters on the bigger picture bfm 89.9 Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.